Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, this morning, we want to talk about my favorite subject, women. <laughs> Especially Christian women in the bold new world. And uh, in addressing what really is a very sens sensitive topic, uh, we have been, in these last couple of messages, seeking to answer two very foundational but critical questions in the lives of Christian women today. The first is, does God have an essential feminine calling on my life? as a woman, a calling that I must not ignore. Well, we addressed that question, as you know, last time, and the answer was an emphatic, yes, He does. God does have a unique feminine call on women in every culture of every age. It is a call of faith, primarily faith in the wisdom of the Holy Scripture. It is a call that is inherently philosophical about life, theological about life, in that it points to a woman's essential values, her basic responsibilities and priorities in living a meaningful and purposeful life before God in her day. It is a call that celebrates the unique and powerful contribution that women make specifically as women. I was reminded again as I read over how Christianity inflamed the Roman Empire with its influence, and as it did, pagan Roman men began to admire Christian Roman women. I found a quote by one of the Roman governors of that day, and he said, God, what incredible women these Christians have. Now, that's a celebration of the unique contribution of women as women. Finally, it is a call that, as we learned last time, can only be transferred into the lives of women by women. It's not something a man can do. It's a women's thing, you know? And it comes about as mothers transfer this call to their daughters or as older women who are more accomplished in life take the time out of their busy schedules and the pace of life to build into the lives of younger and less experienced women personally. I want you to know that if the virtues of Christian femininity as taught in the Holy Scripture is not taught consciously by women to women, then women, the younger women that is, will go out and they will catch not femininity, but feminism. And that's what we've been talking about in these last sessions. Now, as you might imagine, I've probably had a lot of response, and I have, from the last message on call, and I have uh, had that as excellent feedback. I've been uh, excited about what people have exchanged with me and their ideas and their thoughts and their unique situations, and I've sought to respond personally, really, to every one of those. But upon reflection, I want you ladies to know that there was a particular group of women here that... I felt like that I didn't speak as clearly to, and those are the women who are single parents and who have to go about the most difficult task of trying to balance home 
and family together, and it's a very difficult responsibility. And since my comments were by necessity general in nature, as I mentioned at the beginning of the last message, and didn't address in particular your situation, I do have something for you today, not in the message, but after the message. If you'll turn to the end of your outline, if you are a single mom, a single parent, and trying to make that very difficult balance, there is a tape at the back of the auditorium at no charge for you to pick up called Help for the Single Parent. And I hope it will be an encouragement to you uh, in this series of subjects that we are taking on specifically in regard uh, to women. Now, this morning, that brings us to the second question that I mentioned last time that is critical for today's woman, and it addresses the church as an institution. And that question is, simply stated, what can I as a woman do in the church? Uh, from another perspective, is there anything that I can't do? And certainly most of us are aware of the very thorny debate within the church today, all churches, concerning the role of women and the ordination of women to the priesthood or the pastorate, whichever persuasion you come out of. In 1989, for instance, the Episcopal Church broke with 2,000 years of its church tradition and appointed Barbara Harris as the first female bishop of the church. Exactly one year ago, this month, the Church of England voted to admit, among much celebration and fanfare, voted to admit women into the priesthood. And it was hailed by some as a second reformation, which I think is fitting and that we are celebrating today, the first reformation. Time Magazine featured it last year at this time as its cover story entitled, The Second Reformation. And the question for us is, is it? Is it? Is it a second reformation or is it merely another reinvention of the church as it follows after a secular culture? You know, I think as we entertain this question, it will be important for you to understand that this debate about women in the church is far broader than what most of us see on TV or read in the newspapers where it crystallizes usually at one point of contact, and that is the ordination of women into ecclesiastical positions like the priesthood or the pastorate or being a bishop of a church. Most lay people think of this debate as played out on that singular focus, women in ministry. But I want everyone to know here that what is taking place is far broader than that and much more is at stake, whether you know it or not. Even Time Magazine recognized this in its feature story last year. Commenting on the controversy, it went on to say that ordination merely, and I'm quoting here, represents a larger clash between venerable religious beliefs and social movements that have affected much of the world over just this past generation. And if I could interpret that, it would be simply this. On the one hand, in this ring, we have feminism and humanism. And in this corner of the ring, we have church tradition, classic Christian orthodoxy, and the Bible. And what we're seeing at just the point of the iceberg is a clash between those issues, those movements, vying for final supremacy over the church. If you care to scratch beneath the surface debate involving women's ordination, you will quickly find that there are other divisive issues. And I've listed three that I would like to look at here this morning. The first is this debate involves new ways of actually conceiving God. Conceiving God. 
God the Father has become a more sensitive God the parent in some denominations. Some Methodist clergy, for instance, have renamed God as Sophia. They take the word Sophia from the Greek word Sophia, which means wisdom. And they see that wisdom marching in the streets like a person in the book of Proverbs. And they've gone so far as to declare that the Bible teaches the goddess of wisdom and that she is to be worshipped. Other feminist theologians have formed independent women church services where worship revolves around a blend of ecological neo-pagan and Christian elements. And the liturgy celebrates cycles of the moon and teenagers' first menstrual periods. Feminist Mary Daly, I think, says it well. She says, if God is male, then the male is God. Rosemary Radford Ruther, a leading Catholic advocate for the separate women's church movement, includes in her worship forms within the Catholic tradition psalms addressed to the goddess of Babylonia, material relating to the father-mother God of Christian science, a picture of the goddess Isis leading Queen Nefertiti by the hand with the caption underneath reading, Hand in hand, women guide each other as they claim their buried past and journey to the place of the death of patriarchy. And chants like this one, I am woman giving birth to myself while they take the Lord's Supper without ever mentioning the name of Jesus. That sound incredible? You need to wake up. This is what is really occurring. These are the great movements underneath the surface. This is what is really vying for ultimate authority. The point of women's ordination is just a small point. It's one that we need to address this morning of a much bigger clash between ideas and social movements. Secondly, the debate involves, as you might imagine, biblical authority. Some are rewriting the Bible to appeal to a feminized culture. For instance, I've given you, if you'll look on your outline, one statement of what is called uh, gender-free translations from the United Church of Christ around a very uh, popular statement of Scripture, the Great Commission passage. Look at it. It says in this reinterpretation, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of God the Father and Mother, of Jesus Christ the Beloved Child, of the Holy Spirit. I've seen that a lot in politically correct Bibles, but you know, it finally and ultimately frustrates the feminists because they just have to tear out too much. And so the movement is on now to disregard the Bible altogether. According to Rosemary Ruther, who by the way is a very leading feminist advocate of the women's church movement, a priority for feminism is, in her words, the displacement of the Bible as the normative source of Christian belief. It must be reduced to a place, in her words, where, and I'm quoting, it becomes simply one source among many sources for women. What women should achieve within the church, she says, cannot be done from the existing base of the Christian Bible. So it must be removed as the supremacy of faith and orthodoxy. I think Clark Pinnock, somewhat of a maverick theologian, but a well-respected one, he brings it all together. He gives us the bottom line in a short statement. He says, if it's the Bible you want, feminism is in trouble. If it's feminism you want, 
the Bible stands in its way. That's the clash that's taking place. And then thirdly, the debate involves remaking Christianity itself. I have a number of people who are in mainline denominations, and I hear lay people sometimes bemoan the fact, and they say, what is happening to our church? Even in the last few years, everything seems to have speeded up, and there's changes in hymns, and changes in creeds, and changes in statement of faith, and changes in the way we do things. Everything's changing. What's happening to our church, they say, and the, the attendance is declining. I have a standard answer. And my answer to them, whether they know it or not, I say, your church is going through a total social, moral, and theological overhaul. And you need to be asking some hard questions to your leadership. Look at the time quote, which I think accurately portrays what is really taking place. In time, it says, women and men arrive in church Sunday morning and find controversy where they least expect it. Words to prayers and hymns they have cherished since childhood are gradually changing. Denominations that once would not tolerate divorced ministers now find themselves debating whether to accept avowed lesbian ones. The movement's goals, warns Donna uh, Steichen, author of Ungodly Rage, is nothing less than the overthrow of Christianity. It is not about advancing women in positions in the church. It is about a complete change in theology. Now all of this debate can be mind-boggling, I know. At whatever level you're aware of it, here's the one thing I do want you to know. There is one positive aspect to all this, and it's this. It does force every church in every state of our land to stand up to the mic and answer the question. Because women are asking it, either directly or indirectly. Well, then what can I do in the church? What do you teach? To answer that question, I'd like you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy and I would like to answer it first and foremost out of the Bible. And as you're turning there, let me tell you that Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy about certain conditions in the church at Ephesus, including the role that women should play there. Now, for our purposes this morning, I feel like we need to have a historical context for this passage. I think it is vitally important to getting a good feel for the times here. So let me give you very quickly four specific snapshots of Ephesian culture that I think will help you understand what is to some a very difficult passage. But let me tell you, anytime you find a difficult passage in Scripture, don't run by it because its difficulty is simply telling you there's gold here. So mine deeply. And this is one of those texts where there's a lot of gold that we will not be able to take all of it out. There's just too much here, but we're going to touch on some. But let me give you four historical snapshots. The first is this. Financially, we know that Ephesus was an extremely wealthy and prosperous city. It was one of the major financial centers of the Roman Empire at this particular period of time. Tremendous banking in Ephesus. Its twin city, Laodicea, which was just within walking distance of Ephesus, is the city in Revelation 3.17 that's chided for its wealth and its arrogance. For instance, John says in that passage of Laodicea, he says, you say, Laodicea, I am rich and I have become wealthy and I don't need anything. Ephesus was a lot like that. The women of Ephesus, for the most part, lived at a very high standard. Many of the women lived in real luxury, and they often fell victim, as do many in prosperous times, to a preoccupation with having the right things. 
with possessing the right image to exploring and exploiting every opportunity that wealth can bring and forgetting often about the basics of life. Secondly, women in Ephesus had a choice, I mean, excuse me, women in Ephesus had a close uh, social equality with men. There was a strong feminist spirit in Ephesus and all over the Roman Empire for that matter, especially among the wealthy classes. Historian Will Durant writes, he says, Emancipation for women was as complete in these days as it is in ours. Women worked outside the home in shops and factories. Some became doctors and lawyers, athletes, even gladiators. Some became very politically powerful. Historian Jerome Carcapino in his book, Ancient Life in Daily Rome, adds to this when he says, It is certain that the women of the epoch we are studying enjoyed a dignity and an independence at least equal, if not superior to those claimed by contemporary feminists. Now, you know, I've been in classes in the university and I've heard people on radio say, women in the first century were just beaten down slaves. And anybody who says that just simply has not done any research. Women in the first century were going through a revolution concerning their roles. And they were moving out into society, as these historians point out, as much so, if not more so, than women are today. In fact, Carcapino says, he says, women put their enthusiasm in this day into an attempt to rival men, if not outclass them in every sphere of life. A third snapshot would be this. Religion in Ephesus was highly feminized. Lest we forget before Paul came here on his missionary journey, the deity that cast the great shadow over the Ephesian landscape was a she, not a he. In fact, I'm not sure the Ephesians knew much about a male god, but they knew a lot about a female god, the goddess Diana, this multi-breasted woman who was called the mother of all life. All life came from her. The primary industry of the city of Ephesus, if you look back even in the book of Acts, but we know this from historians too, was the making of images and icons of, to the goddess Diana that were spread all over the Roman Empire as Romans worshipped her to give them life in every sphere in which they lived. Her temple was so immense, it was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world right alongside the pyramids and those great hanging gardens of Babylon and the Colossus of Rhodes. In the temple, in the temple of Diana, priestesses outnumbered priests. Thousands of them served equally alongside their male counterparts. Therefore, women were accustomed in Ephesus for generations to holding office, ecclesiastical offices, alongside of men. Then the last snapshot would be this. Women in Ephesus were leaving the home and children for other pursuits. Now that was happening, as I said, all over the Roman Empire. Will Durant says, as he speaks to the opinion that women now had of the home, he says, children were more of a liability than anything else for women in this day. Women wished to be sexually beautiful rather than maternally beautiful. Carcapino adds, and I'm quoting, before this time a woman took pride in her fertility, but now she fears it. 
But I want you to know if she did get pregnant, and there's plenty of historical documentation for this, she had a choice in the first century. As Durant says, so great were the abortionist potions, women were liberated from the bedroom. Are you getting a feel for the times here? Getting a sense of where these Ephesian men and women went about daily life and what their priorities were and values and those kind of things? I had to ask myself, would Gloria Steinem love this place or not? I think this would be a great place for her. And yet, if it was so great, why is it that it was here that Paul planted one of the most effective New Testament churches? A church that flourished. A church that became a major center of Christian influence in the generations to come. And which offered a new God and His Son and a new way of life, a revolutionary way of life. And it was certainly revolutionary in those days. And I'm beginning to think that the Christian way of life will once again return to revolutionary status in our day as well. Some of that new way of life is revealed for women in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9-15. through 15, And that's what we want to explore in the time we have remaining. Look at verse 9. He picks it up actually talking about what women wear. He says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. Now, I'm going to touch on this just to get us started, but I think it will be helpful because, again, it brings in the history here. This verse has been used by some to say women should never braid their hair or wear gold or jewelry or pearls or any of those kind of things. But I think that misses the principle here completely. The force of this verse is really found in just two words, and there are two words I think we can all feel comfortable with, modestly and discreetly. It's not in the words pearls or costly garments or those kind of things. And there's nothing wrong with braided hair either, ladies. It note, note, it goes on. It's braided hair with what? With gold or pearls and costly garments. See, it's all tied together, and all you have to do is read historians to recognize that women, these wealthy women, had gotten so caught up with fashion in Ephesus, they had so much money, that they were importing pearls from the Indian Ocean and gold and threading it in their braided hair along with these ridiculously extravagant and revealing dresses so they could flaunt themselves and compete with themselves in public. Their whole emphasis, in other words, was on the external and outward appearance. Life for the Ephesian woman in many ways had been reduced not only to opportunities, all kinds of opportunities that took up her time, but also to showing off, to looking provocative with the latest everything. Character had given way to clothes. Morality had given way to modeling. And the internal had been replaced by the external. That's really what's going on here. And Paul is just simply introducing the concept that, that real femininity is not on the outside. You need to look good. And he wasn't against looking good. But it's on the inside. And that's what brings us to verse 10. He says, But rather by means of good works as befits a woman making a claim to godliness. Now to help you, let me just paraphrase that. Look at the verse and let me kind of give my own paraphrase of the verse. He's saying this, you know, they shouldn't adorn themselves with gold and all this costly extravagant wear. But, verse 10, let the woman adorn themselves with good works, which are better than good looks anyway, because they last much longer which befits or is a best fit for women 
making a claim to godliness. If you comb through the pages of the Bible, you will find a number of very powerful, impactful women. And it's good that we're going through the book of Esther because Esther was certainly one of those who will long be remembered, not for her clothes, but for her character. And then there's Sarah and Abigail and Mary and Priscilla and Lydia and Phoebe. Not one of them is remembered for her designer jeans or her chic-de-chic tunics or what kind of hairstyle she had. They're all remembered for the beauty of the good works that they wore in living well, in living before the living God. And not just any good works, but good works that befit or that fit a woman in particular. Now we saw some of what some of those good works are. And they were only a small batch of those good works when we talked last time about women in society in general. Some of those good works we saw in Titus 2 included giving priority to nurturing and rearing children, if God grants you that gift, so that they feel loved and wanted. And what a contrast when you see that comment and then pick up the cover of the latest time with Pearl Jam, the alternative rock group of these alternative groups that are about to send a social message like groups did in the 60s to our society. And they cry out in pain. That's their message. The alternative groups is a cry, a rage of pain, where they cry out in particular against the home. They say, no one is there. No one was there for me. Mom, where were you? Dad, where were you? No one cared. No one listened. And so their battle cry is, you just got to do it yourself. Forget about everybody else. Just do it yourself. The call is to an ugly isolation. But that's what happens when you get hurt by people who should love you the most. The good works we saw last time in Titus was that of a loving, of loving and supporting your husband, empowering his leadership. And boy, do men need that because look at the, just the little semblance of the men's movement as men wander around, wondering who they are. What, what role, what, what unique place do I have in society? And the answer comes back real clear. You don't have one. You don't have one. There's not anything that you do uniquely. So men are lost. Some of the good works we saw last week were in building a home and a home life that's filled not with speed, but with creativity and security and a lot of acceptance. Those are just some of the good works. But now we're turning our attention to some additional good works. Those good works are the ones that are particularly within the work of the church and involve the women there. Because it was women through the ages that gave Christianity an irresistible authenticity by their good works in the church. In fact, if you read through the pages of the New Testament, you will see no limitation, hear it, no limitation on what a woman can do in the church. They can teach, they can disciple, they can lead, they can administrate, they can sing, they can evangelize, they can prophesy, they can exhort, they can counsel. There's no limitation of what a woman 
can do in the church. It's so important that you hear that. There is no limitation on what a woman can do in the church. The only limitation that I see in Scripture is one of sphere, not of deeds. There's no limitation on what a woman can do in the church. There is one limitation in regards to where she can do two things. And that's what occurs in the next few verses of our passage. It says, let a woman quietly receive instruction. He's talking about the public worship service with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Look at verse 12 again. Here are the two things that she's limited in. I do not allow a woman to first teach or exercise authority over a man. Now that may sound patriarchal to some of you, mannishly oppressive, but let us just remember what it must have sounded like to the Ephesian women who had gone generations of worshiping a female deity, who were used to having no restraints in any quarter, who were becoming very used to a sameness of life at all levels. But in spite of the culture, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And those, those two limitations require us to do a little exploration. So let's do that. Look at the word teach. In verse 12, it speaks, by the way, to a specific kind of teaching. Authoritative public instruction is probably a good way of interpreting it before group. It's used of Jesus and John the Baptist and Paul and Peter and other men in the Scriptures as they expounded the Scriptures in an authoritative sense to the masses. It's that kind of teaching. Then look at the word exercise authority over. By the way, that's one word in Greek. Exercise authority over. It speaks to a larger, even larger sense of authority of which teaching that's just first mentioned is only one part. A great part, but only one part. The word authentane in Greek means to govern or to lead. It's just spiritual leadership. In fact, that's the way I would reinterpret the verse. I do not allow a woman to exercise spiritual leadership over a man. Women can teach, and they can teach well and authoritatively, but not publicly over men. Women can lead. There are great, a number of women who have the gift, I think, of leadership. And they can exercise authority in a variety of settings, but not, Paul says, if it usurps the spiritual leadership of men. The limitation, therefore, is not in what women do, but in where they do it. Now, as you can guess, most often this principle that I've just set forth is applied to the office of elder or pastor. Really, in the New Testament, they're the same office. Or priest, if you come from a Catholic tradition. All those are the same position. This principle is applied here. And, and when you hear the debate, oftentimes you'll see this verse quoted. And I think that's an accurate Application. It's not the only application, but it's one accurate one. For instance, a pastor and an elder teaches the Scripture's authority, like I'm doing, publicly over the whole church. A pastor, elder, priest governs and spiritually leads the whole church and exercises a fairly broad sense of authority in matters of faith and doctrine. At least a group of them do in our case here at our church. That the office of elder is limited to men can be confirmed by New Testament history by one incontrovertible fact. And that is, as you read through all the New Testament, you will never find one woman elder there. 
There are many scriptures that speak of elders, of the uh, qualifications of elders, of the appointment of elders, and you see elders at work all through the New Testament as pastors. But never once do you find a woman there because it's a broad spiritual leadership position and it wasn't allowed. You think, well, maybe that's just Paul's opinion. And oftentimes, Paul has been charged as a culprit of this patriarchal system in church hierarchy. But let's just go back to Jesus for an instance. You know, Jesus could have easily ended this, what has become really a theological debate, by appointing a woman as one of the people to lead his church. Uh, Jesus was not sensitive to the culture. See, people say, well, he didn't do that because he was just trying to be sensitive to the culture. Jesus wasn't sensitive to his culture. You don't, you don't become sensitive to your culture when you walk into the temple and kick over chairs and tables and those kind of things. You don't become sensitive when you call the, the religious leaders a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombstones. Uh, you don't become sensitive when you take one of their major religious traditions, the Sabbath, and trample all over it in declaring yourself to be something above even the Sabbath. That's not being sensitive. And I want you to know this. Jesus, it was not beyond Jesus' authority to appoint a woman to lead His church. He had women around Him from the start of His public ministry till, he hung, till the point that He hung on the cross. And any examination of the lives of those women, what you find is that they were powerful. They were godly. I have no doubt that they could lead and teach. But when he appointed his church and when he prayed all night, the word he received from his father was to choose 12. And they were all men to exercise spiritual leadership over his church. Now, I want you to listen closely. That is a good application, I believe, an accurate application of this principle but that's not the only application, because it's a principle. I think it's clear that if it was limited just to the office of elder or pastor, Paul would have written this, but I do not allow a woman to pastor the church. But he didn't say that. He gave a principle instead. I think the Anglican scholar John Stott says it best when he says that the principle stated here applies to any situation. Do you hear that? Any situation where women by their actions might undercut, compete with, or usurp the spiritual leadership of men. So if I were going to take this principle and just simply apply it to fellowship, I would say here's the limitations. The limitations to, are to being an elder. The limitations are being to being a community group leader, because in that setting, there are men and women present. I would limit this principle to what goes on in the home, where spent men are declared in other passages of Scripture to be designated the spiritual leaders of their home. Now, they may not be. Just like the teaching pastors of the church uh, may not be good spiritual leaders. But this is the principle that's being applied and asking for men to step up to that kind of responsibility. Now, if I were a woman hearing that, if I were sitting out there where some of you ladies are, I'd say, well, I need an explanation to all that. And that's what Paul gives in verses 13 and 14. I believe what he's saying is, is that what I'm saying here is not my Jewish heritage. It's not me trying to impose my culture on your culture, you Ephesians. But I'm going to take you back to the very beginning of time to how man and woman was created. Look at verse 13. For it was Adam, for, he, that's an explanatory for, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. 
What does that mean? Because that's a hard frontal statement, isn't it? I believe what you see here is Paul's explanation being based on what he interprets God's original creative design to be. And he just summarizes in one terse little phrase. Adam was created first. Now that may not mean much to you, but it meant a lot to people in that day. And we see it a lot when we trace how certain things were given to the firstborn and that kind of thing. It meant a lot. By being created first, God was not making a mistake. He was making a strong social and theological statement about man as male and how it relates to man as female. That's, what I think, what Paul's argument is here. And if you go back to Genesis and read through the pages there, it's kind of like this. As Adam led out by being created first at creation, so like the firstborn of a royal family who is, in a sense, sovereignly selected to lead the nation, Adam is being chosen here to spiritually lead his wife, his family, his community by being in that firstborn position. In other words, spiritual leadership is His by creation. It should be His destiny in the original design. Just like when we look at a woman and see her as the originator of human life because of how God has created her, it says something to her about her ultimate purpose at the core. And to Paul, these created differences must be respected, held up to every culture in every age, for the home, and at least for the church. Now, if you know anything about Genesis, you know that Adam and Eve, though they were created that way, they disregarded this original design pretty quickly. They cast it off. Eve found a better spiritual way. She thought, not only for her, but for her husband. One that threw off the limitations of God. One that threw off the restraints imposed on her. One in which she could reduce all of life from this organizational reporting relationship and however you want to see it, to a flat level plane where everybody was the same. Her, Adam, and God, they were all going to be the same. And in taking that action, what we see her doing is assuming spiritual leadership. Usurping what to her husband should have been his, but taking it, leading, and him following after her. But unfortunately, as verse 14 of our text says, she was quite deceived. Quite deceived, it says. Adam, on the other hand, he sinned in that he went passive. He went flat. Rather than lead, he just kind of stood there. That's what I told the men in the men's fraternity. I said, when you look at Adam in all these events, the woman's all active, moving, interacting, debating with the serpent. And where's the man? Oh, he's, you know, he's kind of taking a break from the garden. He's just kind of hanging out there kind of hanging around, doing nothing, passive, irresponsible. And you know what Adam's real sin was? Because, by the way, I believe Adam sinned first. At the core of Adam's original sin to which he's charged with the fall of the human race was that he stopped believing that it was his duty and his responsibility to spiritually lead. He quit believing that. He just, he just set it aside. Notice in verse 14, it doesn't say that he was deceived. In fact, it says he wasn't deceived at all. He just decided to go passive 
and be irresponsible. And so here you get the mix. You get the man's passivity, which is against God's original design, mixed with the woman's gullibility and her usurping his leadership, which is her sin, and you mix that all together in Genesis chapter 3, and you get the recipe for a disaster. Now I want you to travel with me now, real quickly, down through thousands of years of time. And let's put the brakes on in 1993. And you know what we find? We find the same recipe being mixed together. Feminism seeks to find a better way for men as well as women. A way that will remove all the past limitations, all the constraints that culture, and in particular the church, has oppressively imposed on them and keeping them from ultimate fulfillment. It seeks to reduce all of life to an equal level playing field where everybody can just be the same, kind of this dull sameness. That's what we're after. And as feminism does that, you've got a whole generation of young men who have grown up and have been taught to be passive, who were told that, well, the woman will take care of it. Just do what you want to do. And they've done that, and they've become irresponsible because they've stopped believing at some point in time that they were created uniquely to lead. And you mix those two together, and you have a rep recipe of absolute disaster on, on, on our hands in society today. I hope you had a chance to read William Raspberry's column in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette this week. Raspberry is a black man, uh, an excellent orator, who is, if you read his columns, is kind of on a crusade for the restoration of the black family. There have been many people who have blamed slavery for the breakup of the black family. And this week in his column, Raspberry cited Andrew Billingsley's chart of statistics that go all the way back to the 1890s. And in the 1890s, that's after the Civil War, he cites that 80% of black American households were husband-wife households. There was a responsible man and a responsible woman in them. As you move through the 1890s into the 1900s and the Great Depression and the wars and all that, that figure, though it might change a few percentage points, basically stayed at 80% until 1970. In 1970, a dramatic downturn occurred. And today, only 39% of black American households are husband-wife households. And Raspberry asked, what on earth happened in 1970? great question. It's a probing question, and he probed it in the article. And he came up with really what I felt he was saying was no satisfactory answer, but he did point out that what he has seen in the trend of the black family is now remarkably similar today in white families. The same trend is occurring. I would like to answer what I think happened in 1970, at least in or around 1970. Because I've thought about it a great deal. And I believe that about that time, men were being told through their society, through the feminist movement, through the liberation of the 60s, and all that occurred there, that they weren't responsible to lead anymore. That uh, somehow life could be put on some equitable arrangement and that women needed to carry their load and they could kind of do what they wanted to do. When they got married, women would carry half of the responsibility and so forth and so on. And in that process, they just simply turned off their most male uniqueness. Just let it go. 
Now, it showed up in the black family first, maybe because of a number of things. Raspberry cites integration as maybe one of the reasons for the disintegration, actually, of the black family. But that's to be debated. But here's what I want you to know. The trend is remarkably similar in white American homes because the loss of the responsible spiritual male is not a black thing. It's a male thing, period. It's what's happening in men all across the country. You've got a younger generation of men who have no sense of their responsibility, no vision for it, no vision for leading, protecting, providing for. It's they're going to kind of do their thing, and if a woman wants to come alongside, fine, she can do her thing. But there's no sense of what all that means. He's just kind of drifting and experimenting but no sense of vision and no sense of call. And the result of that is it's killing us. It's literally killing us. As anyone can testify by just getting up in the morning and picking up a newspaper. What the church offers in the midst of that, just like it offered it in Ephesus in the early part of the first century, is a new, revolutionary, redemptive model of society, a little culture within the culture, that calls men and women back to their basic, original design. Yes, it's true. The church limits the sphere of leadership that women can exercise, at least when men are around. It does limit that. But not because women can't lead. They can. Not because they can't teach. They can teach. But because men... Men need vision and encouragement to come out of their passivity and to step into a responsible leadership position. That's what the church models. That's what the church encourages. And women should not, they must not, step in and try to do it for their men. Because ladies, when you do that, you ruin them. You ruin them. And they wander around. And they show up and they don't follow through, and they promise but don't perform, and they live for themselves. The church should be calling men and women, by resisting doing it for them, should be calling men to do what God originally created them to do when He formed Adam first. And that's to exercise responsible and sensitive spiritual leadership. Paul concludes this section after saying that by reminding women of their essential creative calling in verse 15. It's a difficult verse and a lot of times people skip over it, but it's a very profound verse. Let me read it to you. It says, But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. What on earth does that mean? Look at the word preserved. It's the Greek word sozo. It's the word that we use in other places Saved. In fact, you may have a Bible that says, but women shall be saved through the bearing of children. Of course, that has led to a host of wild interpretations. But saved is used in a lot of places in Scripture other than spiritual salvation. And I think that's one of them right here. It still means saved. It's talking about fulfilling, saving you from some danger, but it's not in a spiritual salvation sense. I think saved here means that the woman will be saved, delivered from the sin of Eve's foolishness that we just heard about in verse 14. 
of seeking to find life in something other than God's unique design on her life. And for most women, at the core of that, will be children. Now, I know there are single women who can't have children, or there are barren women that may not be able to have children who long for that. And in those exceptional cases, the Scriptures also say God is our helper. But for most women, this verse applies very directly. It's part of the original call that we see in Genesis. And it says that women will be preserved, they'll be fulfilled, there'll be a significance through the bearing of children. And remember, earlier when I spoke about Ephesian women, remember, they generally regarded children as a liability. They saw the call of the home and children as something, you know, to be avoided at best, that was holding them back. But I want you to know Paul is saying just the opposite. He says that children are a way to be saved from an empty life and from a life of the gullibility that our age is offering to women in their own forbidden fruit. He's saying that children are a way to preserve and fulfill God's original calling on a woman's life. And if women adhere to that, it not only makes them fulfilled, saved from an empty life, but it goes on and it will save the culture in which they live. It's just that powerful. And to avoid that, to neglect that, to go after other things instead of that, is not to be saved, it's to be lost. Now notice, it's not just the bearing of children, because it, the verse goes on to say, if they, and that they in the second part of the verse is children, if those children continue in faith and love and sanctity, which is the word for holiness, with self-control. See, it's not just having children He's calling on women to do. He's calling on them producing and rearing healthy children. Godly children who will fulfill their life when they're in their old age and they look back on what they've done with their life. They'll look back and they'll be fulfilled, saved, if what they look back on are children who have character. Children who are making a difference. Children who really know how to love. Children who really know how to believe. Children who are not just washed to and fro with every new little thing dangling in front of them because they have no self-control and addiction is rampant. No, they will have self-control. And she'll sit on her front porch and she'll feel saved that she invested there rather than in other things. But I want you to know, many women are following the same path as negligent men who bury their head, believe they're going to be fulfilled in having all these diplomas and things on the wall, and they'll go their whole life, and at the end they'll be just like men, sitting out on the front porch with all those things before them and brooding. Brooding. Feeling like I missed it. And I know a lot of men just like that. When I read... This statement of verse 15, I can't help but think of America. Verse 15. Because I think, what wouldn't America give today to have children like this verse describes, growing up this way, running around in our schools, playing in our neighborhoods, playing with your son or daughter, marrying your son or daughter. But how are they going to get there? They won't get there without women. Those kids will never get there. 
It's through the rearing of healthy children that women ultimately exercise their greatest authority, their greatest leadership, and their greatest power over the world. The old proverb, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, really isn't very far off. Over a hundred years ago, the French social scholar Alexis de Tocqueville studied the robust health of American culture. America was reaching a new pinnacle. It was about to explode as the world power when Tocqueville came to America as a social scientist and studied its way of life, its character. He was intrigued with American society. He wanted to know where America was getting its energy, its power, its crea creativity, and its unparalleled morality worldwide. I'm gonna read you his answer. He said, for my part, I have no hesitation in saying that although the American woman never leaves her domestic sphere, nowhere does she enjoy a higher station. If anyone asks me what I think the chief cause of the extraordinary prosperity and growing power of this nation, I should answer that it is due to the superiority of their women. End of quote. Am I suggesting that we turn the clock back a hundred years to the old America? I'm not suggesting that at all. What I'm suggesting is that you turn your faith back all the way to creation. That's what I'm suggesting. To the original design. To see the wonder of it. The power of it. The promise of it. In light of all the other seductions of our age. And ask yourself the question, do I believe this or not? Am I trying to make a makeshift lean-to that I can get through and look culturally acceptable, but ignore these statements, these powerful statements, thinking that I'm going to have it all? Are we going to waste our culture believing lines that have never been proven, that have no historical documentation, and that will fail your life? That's the question. I'm asking you to see in this simple apostolic instruction, 1 Timothy 2, the application of God's marvelous original design on men and women when they come together to work side by side in the church. I'm asking you to see the redemptive power that this design unleashes on society, especially when the church stays faithful to that design and holds it up rather than caving into culture. And I'm asking you to see the profound answer that Paul in fact, gives to a very simple but timely question. What can women do in the church? And the answer is, they can do everything as long as she encourages the men to responsible spiritual leadership. Let's pray. Father, when we look at the words of the Apostle Paul, it really does bring us to a crisis of faith. It's one that we see everywhere in our world. It's not confined to our church. It's the struggle within many churches, whole denominations. I pray, Father, that though the statement made today out of Your Word is only one statement, it's not comprehensive and there are many men and women who have unique circumstances that would 
need to be addressed in much more specific terms. I would pray that we could look and not be ashamed of the fact that men are called to responsible leadership. That women are called specifically to help raise and nurture a godly heritage. I pray that we could see that. That we wouldn't be ashamed of it. That the foolishness, foolish soundingness of that statement is because we live in an age that considers itself wise, but also is profoundly terrified because of what it's done to itself. I pray that we could see you as the life giver, one who's not in any way seeking to take away life, but is providing for us wisdom and instruction that we might escape the pitfalls of life and actually find it not because we've hurt ourselves, but because we've believed in You. So Lord, thank You for this timely Word. And I pray Your blessing on it in the lives of both the men and women of our church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.